Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servants, or his female servants, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we have read your word now and read over the Ten Commandments, we pray, God, that you would minister to each of our hearts, that you would teach us from your holy word. Lord, we want to be a people because we love you, who obey you, who trust you, and who trust in your word as a reliable guide for our lives. So God, as we spend time now unpacking some of these commandments, give us understanding, Lord. And give us hearts that are ready to receive this word and then go and live out this word for your glory and for our good. We commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So last week when I introduced the Ten Commandments to us in Exodus chapter 20, I pointed out that for a lot of people, they look at the Ten Commandments as sort of like God's Uh, rule list that we've got to keep in order to be Christians or in order to have God's favor and make him happy. So to put it differently then, being a Christian according to this type of thinking means that you follow these commandments, that you faithfully observe the Ten Commandments. And of course, nobody's perfect, but if I can do that pretty well, then, you know, I'm a Christian and God's happy with my life. And then, of course, if I'm really bad at this and I break a bunch of these commandments constantly, then I'm not a Christian and God is really, really unhappy with me. And so I said in that way, a lot of people look at the Ten Commandments sort of like a job review with your boss. He's sitting you down and God is evaluating your life and deciding whether or not you get to stay on the team or with the company or whether you get fired. It's a really bad way to understand God's law, though. It's a really unhelpful way of understanding, in particular, the Ten Commandments, but all of God's law. If we back up here in the Ten Commandments to the introduction, which is verses 1 and 2, we're going to realize that that's not the way to read the Ten Commandments at all. And I want to reread for us this morning, right now, verses 1 and 2, and give us the backdrop for the Ten Commandments. We read this, and God spoke 
all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the preface to the Ten Commandments. Before God tells his people to do anything, he reminds them of what he has already done for them. I am your God. I am your deliverer. I saved you from slavery. I saved you from Pharaoh. I saved you from Egypt. You're my possession. You're my people. And I love you. And I'm your God. Now go and live this way. So the Ten Commandments then are not given to us as a set of standards that you and I have to meet in order to earn our God's favor. Instead, they're given to a people who already have God's favor as a set of guidelines that enable them to live life as it was meant to be lived. A life of absolute flourishing. Well, last week we handled commandments one through four. So today, let's turn our attention now to commandments five through ten, what we've been referring to as the horizontal commandments. We've talked about the vertical commandments, one through four, which talk about our vertical relationship with us and God. And now we're talking about the horizontal commandments, meaning Commandments that relate to our relationships with one another. And of course, we're getting this breakdown of the Ten Commandments from Jesus' twofold distinction that we find in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. In these verses, Jesus sums up the entire law in a tweet. He says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus there is able to summarize the law in two categories. Love God and love people. And so commandments one through four, again, are loving God. And now this morning we're talking about what it looks like to love people. Now, in our society, love is defined in a number of different ways. To love someone, according to popular thinking, is only to affirm, only to support, only to encourage, only to accept. Love, then, is mainly concerned with how you make the other person feel. And although feelings are not insignificant, and the Bible cares about people's feelings, The biblical definition of love is not mainly about how people feel. According to the Bible, what it means to actually love is that you are seeking the good of another person. So, for example, when the scriptures talk about the way that God loves us, we understand that God is seeking our good. Listen to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved us according to this verse, so he sent Jesus to save us from our sins. In Christ, our greatest need is satisfied. Forgiveness of our sins. Reconciliation to our Father in heaven. And therefore, Jesus has secured our greatest good. To love then is to seek the good of another. As we turn to these horizontal commandments then, we are looking at laws that God has given to you, that God has given to me, for our good, and for the good of one another in the community. See, the Israelites here in Exodus 20 are at the base of Mount Sinai, 
and they are free from the bondage of Egypt, but they were living their lives in harmful and destructive ways for the community. Lying, stealing, sleeping with each other's spouses. So God is giving them a set of guidelines that are going to create a healthy and happy community. Back in 2010, the late atheist Christopher Hitchens wrote an article for Vanity Fair that was titled, The New Commandments. And in this article, he sought to revise the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses, suggesting that these commandments were ready for a bit of an update, maybe a 2.0 version should be released. Of course, as an atheist, he dismissed outright commandments one through four because all of those commandments relate to a God that he didn't believe in. But what I found so fascinating when I read this article is that when he came to the horizontal commandments, commandments five through ten, at the end of the day, after all of his bickering and nitpicking, he really couldn't argue with the logic and the wisdom of things like not sleeping with other people's spouses, things like not stealing other people's properties, things like not bearing false witness in a courtroom and perverting justice. And what's interesting is virtually every civilization has shared most of this moral code. Yeah, there's small modifications, but these ideas are very basic to what it looks like to care for one another and live in harmony with one another in a community. And so we can know with confidence because these come from God, that as we seek to obey these laws, we are in the truest sense loving our neighbors. We are seeking their good. Listen to Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. The Apostle Paul essentially says as much. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So hopefully we can see this morning that God here is giving Israel and giving us by extension these horizontal commandments, not as some cosmic killjoy who is out to ruin your life, but rather that God is giving these commandments to them and to you in an effort to preserve and promote the greatest good in the human community. Let's look together at these commandments, starting with commandment five. In verse 12, we read, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So here we read commandment number five, to honor our parents, to honor your father and your mother. Now the family unit is the basic unit of every society, and God here starts at that basic level. He starts with the family, and he commands that children honor the authority structure that he has placed in the home, which is their parents. And God is saying to children, listen, you need to submit to and you need to honor your parents. All the parents are glaring at their children right now. Listen up, listen up. But it's true, children are to honor and submit to their parents. Children are to respect their parents. That means, sure, you can disagree with your parents, but you shouldn't be argumentative. You should speak well of your parents. You should seek to put your parents in a positive light instead of trashing your parents when you're talking to friends or others. You should seek to be a blessing to your parents and not a terror 
to your parents. Um, I remember when I was about a teenager, my mom was telling me that when she was young, that her and my aunts and uncles used to actually go in their backyard and they would dig holes and then cover the holes up and then they would lure their grandmother into the backyard and try to get her to fall in these holes because their, their grandmother was so bad to them. At least that was their impression. So they would try to trick their grandmother into coming into the backyard to fall into these holes. That is like a very clear violation of commandment number five. That's the polar opposite of honoring and respecting and loving your parents and grandparents. We, as God's children, certainly shouldn't do things like that. We need to be people who are submitting to and honoring and loving and respecting our parents and our grandparents. Now, of course, your submission to your parents is going to lessen over time as your relationship evolves, as you grow up. When you begin your own family and you leave your father and your mother and you cleave to your spouse... But we need, to, we need to realize that even when we are no longer under the direct authority of our parents, commandment number five doesn't go away. You and I are called to honor, to respect, to love and uh, do good to our parents through the rest of their lives. This continues all the way up until the point that our parents are nearing the end of their lives and they need our help and our care as their children. And all of us as Christians must take that responsibility seriously. Because this verse calls for submission in the basic unit or institution of society, the family, it implies submission to all aspects of society. Commandment number five in Jewish thinking and Christian thinking has always worked its way outward in the fact that we should be a people who are submissive to all authority, that is, proper authority in society, like our government, like our employers in the workplace, like law enforcement officers. And therein we see some of the fulfillment of the promise of the fifth commandment. I think a lot of us, we read and we go, now, how does that promise here that it'll go well with us? How does that actually work itself out if we honor our parents? Well, listen, when children learn to honor and submit to the authority of their parents, then they learn to honor and submit to the authority of the other legitimate authority structures in society, and it goes well with them. They learn to honor and respect the government, law enforcement officers, their employers someday, other authorities in their life like pastors and spiritual authorities in their lives, and it goes well with them. And of course, the opposite is true. When children are raised in such a way that they dishonor their parents, they disrespect their parents, they dismiss the authority of their parents, oftentimes, that translates over to the same thing with their teachers, the same things with the police, the same things with the government, and it goes really, really poorly for those children. Now, we should be reminded before we move on to commandment six, that no submission is absolute except our submission to God. And so, although it is good and right for us to submit to all these authority structures in life, there are times when the government, for example, by violating the commandments of God, actually ought to be resisted. You'll remember Daniel, the great prophet of God who was in a pagan land working for the king. And there was a commandment that came down that said, you can't worship your God anymore. You can't pray to your God anymore. And Daniel thought to himself, what am I going to do here? And he, like the apostles would later choose, decided it's better to obey God than man. And he continued to pray and let the consequences fall 
where they might. There are times where an employer or a boss might ask you to do something that is unethical. And we've got to follow God and not man. And tragically, there are some parents who violate, violate God's law and subject their own children to physical or sexual abuse. No child is being commanded by God to submit to that. Parents like that are definitely not deserving of honor and respect. And so it would be difficult for a child who's endured some sort of abuse to think about how can I apply a command like this? Those parents, rather than faithfully stewarding the authority that God has given them, have sinfully abused it by the way that they've abused their children. So what might it look like for a child who has endured abuse from their parent to obey the fifth commandment? It's hard to say. But for a parent who wasn't there for you or who abused you, honoring that parent might look like a simple but not easy willingness to forgive them from your heart. Having that sort of a posture, leaning into the love of God so fully, so deeply, that God enables you by His Spirit to actually be willing to forgive a parent who has done something horrific. Because that very act could very well be the blessing of a lifetime for that parent, and honestly for you too, because we all know how damaging it is to live a life of bitterness and unforgiveness. At the end of the day, we are called to honor our father and mother. That is commandment number five. Let's look at commandment number six in verse 13. Only four words, very direct. You shall not murder. Anybody here glad this is in the Ten Commandments? I am. This is good advice. This is a great way to live. Good, sound advice for the community. You can't go around murdering people. Now, murder, according to Webster's Dictionary, is the crime of unlawfully killing a person. And notice, even in our modern definition of the word murder, there's a distinction drawn there between lawful killing and unlawful killing. Murder is the unlawful killing of a person. And this was certainly the case in the Old Testament too. In the Old Testament, we see that not all killing was a violation of commandment number six. Only unlawful killing was breaking commandment number six. For example, the state has the authority to kill lawfully. In Romans chapter 13, we read that the government does not bear the sword in vain. In other words, the government, in its exercise of authority, actually has the right to, if necessary, take life to enforce its laws. Of course, this right would also extend to a nation's right to defend itself militarily. And so in the service of your country, when engaged in a just war, it's legitimate to take life. Finally, and more near to home for most of us, the idea of killing someone in self-defense as an absolute last resort is something that would fall outside of the scope of what commandment number six is talking about. But the general posture of God's people should be that taking somebody's life is something we would never, ever, ever want to do. It should be something that we want to stay away from as much as we possibly could. What's at stake here is murder, unlawfully taking other people's lives. Listen, God alone is the author of life, and God alone should be taking life under good and ordinary circumstances. People are made in His image. Again, our heart should 
veer from the idea of having to actually end another human's life. And all of us need to understand that God is telling us we can never unlawfully kill another human being. I would hope that this morning, all of us up to this point are going, easy, haven't broken this commandment, haven't committed first degree murder. Cool, check that one off my list. Move on, pastor. What else do we need to understand here? I hope that's the case. But even if that is the case, and none of us have murdered anyone outwardly in the physical act, Jesus, of course, is not content with that. And so Jesus wants to draw our attention to the inward intent of murder that is still sinful. Listen to Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Here Jesus wants to press in further and deeper than just our outward behaviors and our outward actions. And he wants to get to the root of the issue, which is your heart. For us to walk around and pride ourselves on the fact that we've never physically killed somebody or murdered somebody, all the while harboring hatred and sinful anger in our hearts toward another human being is self-defeating, hypocritical, and dishonoring to the Lord. God is always concerned with the heart. God always wants us to address the root of the issue. Because listen, church, your heart is where all of your sin originates. It all starts here. This is what James chapter 1 teaches us. It teaches us that before we ever cross the line to sin outwardly with our words or with our actions, we've already crossed the line in our own hearts. James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then, when desire, or then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a progression here. It begins in our heart and then grows up into sinful actions and sinful speech. And then that grows up into a destructive life that is bent on harming people and leads to destruction. So to only concern ourselves with these physical commands or the outward actions from these commands while ignoring hatred and sinful anger in our hearts is like going into your yard and cutting off the tops of every weed but leaving the roots under the soil. It's only a matter of time until those weeds get the upper hand on you. Jesus wants us to come and actually pluck up the root in the power of the Spirit so that we can address the issue where it's actually found. This is exactly what happened with the first murder in history. Remember Cain and Abel. There was the sin festering in Cable's heart, and rather than dealing with it at that level, he allowed it to fester, and it ultimately gave way to him murdering his brother. In Genesis 4 we read, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to what he says. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The very next verse. Cain spoke to Abel's brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel 
and killed him. God was warning Cain. Sin, it's there. There's this, this, this skewed desire in your heart. Now, you need to take control of it. You need to deal with it there. Otherwise, it is going to take you over. And that's exactly what happened. And so that initial sinful anger in his heart gave way to the actual destructive action of killing his own brother. Jesus is looking at our hearts. Jesus is challenging us this morning to examine, are, are we filled with hatred or anger toward other people? Are we allowing that to just fester in our hearts? Don't be deceived. That is sin. It's dishonoring to God. And those are the roots that actually can grow up into acts of physical violence. Commandment number seven, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Now, commandment number seven is dealing specifically with sexual purity. The scriptures teach us that sex is a good gift given to us by a good God. That sex is given to us for the purposes of procreation and pleasure and unity between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Now, of course, saying that in a church, everybody just kind of shrugs their shoulders. But if we were to go to UCSB right now and we were to make a public announcement that that's where sex is supposed to occur, that would be widely dismissed. We live in a culture right now that largely believes that sex outside of marriage is legitimate and inconsequential and that largely believes that marriage is an institution that does not only belong to a man and a woman, but that it is an institution that anyone in any arrangement can enter into. Scriptures teach us otherwise, of course. Sorry, I'm having to find my message on my phone now because technology is not working for me. So here's what we read in the original marriage account in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and they shall become one flesh. The reason why we as Christians honor marriage, the reason why we as Christians uh, believe that marriage needs to remain the way that it is, is because marriage is God's idea, not man's. God is the one who instituted marriage for our good and for human flourishing. And God says that it exists between a man and a woman for their happiness, and so they can raise their children in the ways of the Lord. Notice that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul builds on this foundation in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, Paul's going to explain that this original marriage covenant, although it was certainly intended to bless humankind, is actually embedded as a picture of the mystery of the gospel. Here's what Paul writes, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. He's quoting Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He says this mystery is profound and I, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. First and foremost then, this commandment flows out of God's desire and heart to protect marriage as a picture of the gospel. All sex outside of marriage is a perversion then or a slander of the gospel. But let's not stop there. Our God cares about the gospel because our God cares about 
people. When a husband or a wife is unfaithful to their spouse, they disintegrate their marriage and oftentimes they destroy their family in the process. And children become collateral damage in the whole mess. And God is telling us, listen, sex is a powerful thing, but it's a good gift that I've given to you. And when sex functions in the context of covenant faithfulness between a husband and a wife, it is safe and it is a blessing and it is beautiful. In that way, as God intended it to be, it's an emotionally safe and physically shameless experience. In the marriage context, husband and wife are secure in their love and their commitment to each other. And children are brought into the world in a secure and loving framework. So the negative command here is you shall not commit adultery. Be faithful to your spouse. But the positive command is you shall remain faithful to your spouse. In Proverbs chapter 5, we have this great wisdom given to us starting in verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So God's saying, faithfully love your spouse. Invest your time and your energy and your emotion in that relationship, not in other potential relationships. Now again, like the last commandment, a lot of us might be able to sit here and say this morning, well, I've never committed adultery, and so I'm doing really, really well with this commandment. But once again, Jesus is going to point past the actual physical act and get at the root again, which is our hearts. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, a lot of critics of the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount say, why is God like Big Brother in George Orwell's 1984 uh, novel? Why is God concerned with thought crime? Why is he trying to punish thought crime? It's not really hurting anybody else. Why does God care about what we're thinking about as it relates to hatred or lust? Well, again, like we're saying this morning, that is the root that ultimately builds itself up into committing these horrendous physical actions. And also the root itself is toxic and destructive and sinful. We need to understand that pornography and fantasizing about other people are sinful and destructive practices that actually skew our desires and it causes us to objectify other people in our minds and in our hearts and it disintegrates our affections for God and for our spouses. And like I just said, these are also seeds that if left undealt with can quite easily grow up into the actual physical violation of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. 
Commandment number eight, we'll move through. You shall not steal in verse 15. You shall not steal. Now, stealing, of course, is taking someone else's property. It's taking something that doesn't belong to you without their permission. If they say you can have it, that's obviously not stealing. If they don't and you take it, you have stolen. Now, people pretty much recognize this universally as a good thing. The protection of personal property is basic and fundamental to the society that you and I live in. In our community, you cannot steal people's things and you cannot steal people's ideas. So if we got together over lunch later and said, you know what, let's start a footwear company. And you said, Daniel, what do you think we should call it? And I said, Nike. And I said, you got any logo ideas? And you said, I don't know, what about a little swoosh? That wouldn't fly. That's all trademarked. We can't just steal that idea and that brand from Nike. Now, most of us probably are not kleptomaniacs. Most of us probably don't go around and just steal people's handbags and wallets and cars and break into people's homes. But there are some more subtle forms of stealing that many Christians fall into. Let me give you a few examples. Plagiarism. Plagiarism is a big one. That's stealing other people's intellectual property. It's stealing somebody else's ideas and claiming it as your own. And listen, it's wrong. I see people do this on social media all the time. They'll take a quote that I know is from somebody else and they will not give credit to who it is and they'll just put it forward like it's their own idea. Of course, pastors are guilty of this at times. They will take somebody else's idea and quote it verbatim and not say as so-and-so said, which is actually a really easy thing to do. Students do this often. People do it in their workplaces. Plagiarism, again, is stealing somebody else's intellectual property. Another example is using someone else's Netflix, cable, Spotify account that you aren't paying for. Everybody's eyes just went. Now, if it's a family sharing thing, that's different. But how many people just, well, I, I've got their login information. I'm going to log into somebody else over there's accounts so that way I can get this service and these products and not have to pay for it. This is another subtle form of stealing, taking something you're not paying for. Another example is cheating on your taxes. Another example is using work time for other things, taking care of personal things on the clock, or, you know, sitting on the clock at your desk and I'm just going to goof around for 20 minutes on social media, update my profile right now, online gaming, paying our bills, online gambling. People do all sorts of things on company time, and you are stealing from the employer. Other people complete one job, and they'll linger on the job site for an extra 20, 30 minutes, or take a quick nap in their truck before they move on to the next job. All the while, the boss still thinks you're on the last job. Another example is damaging someone else's property, maybe their home or their car, and then not saying anything about it, not taking responsibility. Now putting that person on the hook to go get the car dent taken out that you put in and just peeling out of the parking lot and acting like nothing happened. Church, there are many different ways to steal. Some are more subtle than others. God is saying to us, you shall not steal. We must respect other people's property. We must respect other people's ideas. It's unloving for us to damage somebody else by taking their things and leaving them put out. Now, why do people steal? Well, the answer is easy. They want the benefit of something without having to do the work for it. 
If it's intellectual property, they want to steal somebody's idea so they don't have to go through the difficult and laborious task of thinking that through on their own. If it's physical things, then of course they want the benefit of that physical possession without having to go through the long, hard, laborious task of working, getting money, and then purchasing it yourself. So Christians ought not to steal. What should we do instead? Ephesians 4.28 Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let me put it to you differently. Christians ought to be a blood donor and not a vampire. Think about it. What does a vampire do? A vampire sucks the blood of somebody else, is a drain on somebody else's vital resource. Whereas a blood donor generates enough of their own blood to then freely give somebody else from their surplus. God is telling us in an economic standpoint, or from an economic standpoint, that the ideal thing to do is work hard and earn so that we have things that we can be generous with and actually bless other people. What a great gospel witness that is. Commandment number nine, you shall not give false testimony, verse 16. Now, of course, this command is directly related to a legal setting where you're the witness on the witness stand and you're giving testimony to something. And the command is saying, don't give false testimony. Don't lie under oath. The real issue at stake here is a matter of justice. If you know the truth in a situation and you know a person is guilty, And you go and you lie about that and let the guilty go free, you've perverted justice. Of course, on the other end of it, if you know a person is innocent, but you lie and fabricate details and say that that person is guilty and they're punished for a crime they didn't commit, you have once again perverted justice. How unloving is this to make it your aim to actually inflict an injustice on another human being? This is a serious, serious command that we ought to uphold justice with our words. It's the loving thing to do. Oftentimes when we lie, the reason for it is we are seeking our own well-being. We're not thinking about other people. We're not being considerate of other people. We're thinking about me, myself, and I. I want to protect myself for a mistake I made, or I want to manipulate a situation to get what I want, and so we tell lies. Rather than this, God's word tells us, again in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. When we're truthful with one another, we are loving to one another. We're serving one another well. Of course, there are many forms of lying, just like there are many forms of stealing. Sometimes it's outright deception. You get to the end of an online class, and the last thing is a true or false question or yes or no question. I have completed all of the assigned reading. Hmm. <laughs> and if you haven't, you che- and you check I have or yes or true, that's just a lie. It's outright deception. You are telling them something that is not true. So sometimes it's outright deception. Other times it's exaggeration. Pastors are susceptible to this too, particularly in talk about the size of their church. So how many members do you have in your congregation? Um, I mean, how do, can I round up a little bit? You know, they exaggerate the details there, but many people are prone to exaggeration. 
And we exaggerate the details of things, which is a form of lying. Here's another one telling a half-truth. You get to work late, and your boss says, why are you late? Your response, sorry, there was traffic, which is true. But you failed to mention the other half of the truth, which is, and I also didn't set an alarm last night, and I woke up an hour late. You just omit that whole half and tell the half-truth to protect yourself. I could go on and on. God is calling us to be a truthful people. And if we've messed up somewhere, rather than lying to conceal that, we should confess that and move forward. Lying damages the community by typically hurting other people, and lying always erodes trust. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet, found in verse 17. This last commandment is sometimes a very tricky one. Oftentimes we think of coveting as wanting a thing that someone else has. So if your friend comes by the house to show you their new vehicle and you think, man, I'd love to get a car like that. We say, hey, thou shalt not covet. You're coveting your neighbor's new car. Coveting isn't wanting a thing that someone else has. Coveting is wanting the thing that someone else has. Like wanting the actual one that they have. The commandment says not to covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, and so on and so forth. That does not mean that you shouldn't desire a house for yourself or a spouse for yourself. The issue at stake is saying, I want your spouse, or I want your house, or I want your car, or I want your career, or whatever it might be. The commandment really then deals with the sin of discontentment. Rather than looking at what you have and being a thankful person, a grateful person for the spouse God has given you, for the children God has given you, for the job that God has given you, for the home that God has given you. It's always having a focus outward and saying the grass is greener on the other side. I'm discontent here. I want what he has. I want what she has. And that desire is sinful in and of itself. And again, like so many of the other commands, gives birth oftentimes when it's left unchecked to other sinful actions and behaviors. So if you've ever desired someone else's husband or wife, boyfriend or girlfriend, wardrobe or car, career or accomplishments, then my friend, you are guilty of covetousness. Now this 10th commandment is unique in that it's the only one of these commandments 3,500 years ago that was not directed to some outward behavior of the horizontal commandments. It was directed at an inward motive in the heart. Anthony Salvaggio notes that this final commandment foreshadows powerfully that God's ultimate concern in giving the law is to see our hearts change toward him and toward our neighbor. It was always a matter of the heart. This is what God has always cared about. Now, as we close our consideration of these commandments this morning, I hope there's no one here this morning who's like, six for six. I mean, I'm killing it. I'm doing great with these. I have no sin. I'm perfect. I mean, family, who among us has never told a lie? Who among us has never stolen something? Who among us has never lusted after someone in our own heart? Who among us has never coveted what another has? Every single one of us has. This is why Romans 3.23 makes a really clear statement that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us as we stand before the law of God, written here in the Ten Commandments, fall miserably short. All of us stand condemned. Not one of us has ever 
loved perfectly. None of us ever will love perfectly. No one ever has, except Jesus, of course. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. Jesus fulfilled the law of God that you and I couldn't. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus in his life and in his ministry perfectly obeyed God's law on our behalf because we couldn't. We see this spelled out for us in Romans 8, 3, and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's amazing. We couldn't fulfill it ourselves. But God sent his own son to live that righteous life and to die on the cross where he bore the penalty for your sin. And by faith in him, Christ gives us his righteousness so that it can truly be said of us who have put our faith in Christ that we have fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. Praise Jesus for that. What great news that is for us this morning. And this is why it's so, so, so important that you and I never look at the Ten Commandments as the standards by which you and I need to measure up to in order to earn God's favor. It will never work. Jesus is the one that you and I need to constantly look to as the one who has secured for us God's eternal favor because Jesus alone has fulfilled the law. So the marching orders for us are to turn to Christ in faith, to trust in him completely and only for our righteousness before God. And if we've done that, then like Israel, God is saying to us, I am your God who has saved you from your peril, which is judgment for your sin, which is death and hell for all of eternity. Jesus is saying to those of us who has put faith in him, I am your God who has saved you. Don't worry about that anymore. And here I'm giving you my word to guide you, to bless you, to cause you in your life and the community around you to flourish forever and ever. And who doesn't want that? Let's pray. God, we are so thankful this morning for your word. And Lord, I think that so many people look at your law as somehow a bad thing, as somehow something to be avoided, but oh, that we would recover the perspective of the Jews who said that they delighted in your law more than their daily food, that your law was more important than treasures and gold and silver, that your law was like honey dripping to the taste. And the reason for that is because they always understood that your law was given to them not to be some horrible taskmaster, but to actually guide them into the right way to live. So Lord, we thank you for your law. But God, we are also so thankful this morning that the very thing that the Jews misunderstood because of your Holy Spirit, we grasp. And that's that even though the law is intended for our good, we can't do it in our own strength. And we fail and we destroy relationships and we destroy the community. 
So God, this morning, we once again want to praise you that you send your own son to rectify that problem, to fix that problem. And by turning to Christ in faith, we can have our sin forgiven. And we can now be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out these commands in your strength and not our own. Oh Lord, we praise you for this good news this morning. And so God, I would ask that you would help us, that you would empower us as we go forward from the church today and we be the church all week long, empower us by your spirit to live out these commands because they are good and they are God honoring and they will bless us and bless others. So empower us to do that, we pray, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.